Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. We have a great show tonight. We have a woman named Laura Wilson, who's an attorney, privacy advocate, business consultant, and she's with Para Consulting Group. And you can find out more about her at techlec.com. That's T-E-C-H-L-E-X.com. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. Laura is experienced in finding and fixing information security and other compliance gaps in the financial services industry. Despite the great concern expressed by you and I and consumers, shareholders, regulators, etc., there are significant gaps and bypasses of controls which still remain in that industry. An information security breach has tremendous horrific implications for consumers, investors, and the larger market. This may compromise not only the investors and the companies themselves, but also the whole global security and national security. So it's important to know that many of these problems that we have should be fixed. Now, Laura has negotiated and managed complex outsourcing and vendor relationships with many companies. For example, she worked with a publicly traded global credit card company that co-authored the payment card industry standards. She also worked with one of the largest publicly traded mortgage companies in the United States and also a publicly traded international investment advisory firm. Laura works in governance, risk compliance, deal analysis, and problem resolution related to highly sensitive systems and data. Her experience encompasses business and businesses and legal roles for highly regulated organizations, including publicly traded international financial services companies. Laura has had the opportunity to train many different types of professionals on industry standards, gap analysis, and risk mitigation. She writes training materials to help stakeholders identify and remedy compliance and security gaps and verify appropriate diligence. She does a lot of volunteer work with professional groups and not-for-profits as well. Laura holds a Juris Doctorate. She's licensed in the state of California here as an attorney, and she's a CISA, which is a Certified Information Systems Auditor Candidate. She's already passed part of the exams, and she's waiting her certification. And she is also pursuing security certifications, including CISSP, which is a Certified Information Systems Security Professional, CFE, a Certified Fraud Examiner, and CGEIT, Certified in the Governance of Enterprise IT. Lots of C's over there. <laughs> Laura served as on active duty for over eight years in the United States Army. She was a staff sergeant, 
paratrooper, TV and radio broadcaster, and she served in military intelligence, psychological operations, communications, public relations positions, and she won several Soldier of the Year awards. Well, we thank you for that, Laura. Thank you so much for being such a dedicated citizen and helping to protect us over here in the United States. Thank you so much, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Maury. I'm excited to talk with you and with your listeners. Well, Laura, first of all, tell us a little bit more about all these C's, these designations. Tell us about what is a CISA and why do you want to be one? Well, as you've noted, uh, I am licensed and worked for several years as an attorney in California and am now working in uh, business, business non-attorney roles. And I worked a lot in information security, what I call finding and fixing the problem. I realized that in order to communicate with and uh, work with appropriately the many, many other experts, because this is a very complicated field and we all have such specialized areas of expertise, that I needed uh, certain other certifications so that I could translate my particular niche and translate uh, with the other fields of expertise. Right. So the first one that I worked on was the CISA that's in the works, and I am uh, hoping to attain some of the others. Tell me, what exactly is a CISA and what kind of a test did you have to take? I took an exam for the CISA that I thought was harder than the bar exam. Uh-oh. And, <laughs> and I would say that because information security and protection of information assets and how do you audit that, as in how do you find and fix the gaps, uh, is a relatively new area. And I thought that uh, the body of knowledge was having to deal with a lot of cutting-edge issues and that, therefore, it was more difficult to teach because it's, it's somewhat in flux and being defined, uh, it was more difficult to teach than the very standardized body of knowledge that we're all taught in preparation for the bar exams. So I have great respect for the people who attain those certifications and for the experts who teach that. And it's such a moving target nowadays, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely. It's constantly changing the technology. Absolutely. How did you get to be so proficient in security coming from just the legal field? Well, uh, let me clarify that I don't hold myself out as an expert in, in every link of the chain, and that's one of the important messages. This is a very complex chain uh, of, uh, let's call it, accountability for data access to regulated systems and data. And because it is such a moving target and because our threat environment is so serious right now uh, that it requires you know, many different uh, bodies of expertise. So the piece that I know, I'm a very good practitioner at the deal analysis, both on the front end and on the back end, you know, when we have to clean something up, uh, my particular piece is analyzing these deals and vendor relationships. And there are many, many other experts who are uh, hardcore in other aspects, such as information technology, uh, uh, meaning the hardcore tech area, uh, and in the financial and accounting systems, just to name a few. Yeah, but you have to know the jargon and you have to know the meaning of a lot of that stuff so that you can do these deals with the right people. You have to know the vocabulary, uh, and I don't think that it is possible for any one person, or at least I've not met any, I don't think it's possible for any one person to be expert in the vocabulary and the concepts and the moving target, the changing environment you know, that, that all of these teams have to deal with. So what I, what I look for and try to teach others to do is to translate and work well with all of the other teams. So why don't you tell us more then about your background in working on privacy and information security issues? Well, I've been working on privacy and information security uh, basically starting with my almost uh, nine years, over eight years on active duty in the Army. And what I worked with in a variety of jobs there was the appropriate protection and use and distribution of information. And I started working on that, as you noted, in military intelligence roles, in broadcasting roles, in public relations, those kinds of things. Then after law school, I started working uh, in 1998, uh, still during the dot-com boom. I started working in Silicon Valley with information technology companies. And one of our major issues was the protection of sensitive information assets and systems. Then in 2000, 
concerns about privacy and customer and consumer and company data started hitting the radar, you know, particularly the privacy concerns. So I started uh, working on those issues, uh, particularly in an online format. And this work has been in a variety of business and legal roles, uh, working with external law firms, working in internal positions for these companies, and then working as a consultant. And I've done a lot of uh, work from the, both the buy side and the sell side, mean, meaning buying for and selling to companies that process and have access to regulated systems and data. So what kinds of companies? Were they mostly financial services companies? Uh, again, from both ends of the table, buy and sell side. Uh, I've worked with financial services companies. Uh, I have worked with software and services companies that, uh, that provide the product and services that access those systems. And I presently work as a consultant with a company that provides training and consulting services to find and fix these problems. And we also work on software design to, uh, uh, to address this business problem. Wow. So it must have been something else working in the military. Now, how, how, how would you say the security and the privacy is in the military? Uh, my service in the military uh, was from 83 to 92. Uh, so I certainly can't speak to uh, the current state and, and don't pretend to uh, have anything other than the publicly available knowledge about what's going on there. But I think one of the important concepts, one of the fundamental concepts that we did learn in my very first unit, which was a military intelligence unit, uh, one of the very first pieces that we learned is that when you're dealing with, and in the military, let's call it classified information, when you're dealing with classified information, data compromise can, can be accretive, meaning that somebody who wants to make misuse of sensitive data doesn't have to get every piece of data from a single source at one time. They can pick it up from different sources at different times, and before you know it, somebody's got uh, enough access and or data to, to inflict serious damage. So are you talking about social engineering? Uh, it's not just social engineering. It could be, uh, for instance, uh, some of the different gaps. It could be uh, a, a lack of adequate understanding of who, who meaning individual or company or organization, who has access to that data, uh, uh, not properly monitoring uh, how that data is handled or where it's going. Uh, it could be, as you noted, uh, uh, some of the social engineering things that uh, experts talk about as far as um, talking you into giving up a little bit of mm -hmm. information and then talking somebody else the next the next chain exactly. on the link to exactly. uh, give you more information until you get exactly what you want exactly right and I'll I'll uh, describe uh, a little bit further as we talk about uh, uh, you know some of the other topics uh, beyond the preliminary ones I'll describe a little bit further uh, what some of our other infosec uh, writers have have described. Uh, as far as how, how a data thief can take even just one piece of information and inflict serious harm. Exactly. So you, you talked a little bit about finding and fixing some of the gaps in protection of, of data and systems and that gaps um, and that the gaps in protection are, are really very disconcerting for you. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Tell us about some of these gaps. I think most ordinary consumers are worried. They think that they can trust a bank or they think that they can trust their credit card company or any their you know their stock whatever and they are not really aware of the systems and the gaps why don't you talk about that well uh one reason uh that that uh, my colleagues and i are so concerned about this and uh, are, are speaking and uh, training and working with other industry and professional groups to address this is that many of the gaps are unrecognized. And this is despite uh, many of the, the controls and in many large companies, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars devoted to trying to, rid, uh, to mitigate and identify and manage risk. So, uh, and there's an important preface to put out there, is that what we are interested in is not a finger-pointing exercise. What we are interested in is uh, getting appropriate attention and education to how some of these gaps occur 
and how they can be fixed red, fairly readily and efficiently without shutting the business down, you know, because shutting down uh, an entire sector of the economy or a huge company uh, doesn't serve anybody if we can take care of the problem ahead of time. Right. So, so what we work on is let's find and fix the stuff before there's a crash. So you're talking about preemptive measures, protection measures, or are you also talking about when you see that that problem, you you quickly, uh, you know, do something to stop it before it proliferates? Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, we we talk about uh, real life lessons learned uh, that uh, that my colleagues and I. Uh, who come from several different areas of expertise uh, that my colleagues and I have uh, successfully used in the industry, uh, how we did that using, uh, uh, let's call it human engineering, and then, of course, you roll that up into a solution, a software solution that can help address these business problems. Um, but one thing that I, I may not have addressed is why we have such great concern over gaps in the protection of financial systems and financial information. And one thing that I see is that I think that material gaps in the protection of financial systems and information is of even greater concern and import than the initial things that we saw when Sarbanes-Oxley first came out. And I'll explain why. And for, my, and for my audience who isn't familiar with SOX and the accounting concerns, could you explain that a little bit and then why you think that comparably the problems now are worse than those? Sure. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, uh, kind of the first wave of things that we saw were post-Enron, post-Worldcom, all of these concerns with accounting and revenue recognition basically addressing the question, are your numbers right? Uh-huh. So uh, this was uh, sometimes looked at as uh, a, a CFO and CEO and, and finance concern. So the additional element with relation to financial systems and data is, I believe, uh, also of, of national and global security. And I'll, I'll say this for this reason. If you have a material compromise of these systems, I believe that while it might not be uh, an immediate physical harm, that significant compromise of financial systems and data could be a, a very effective and very pervasive and very long-lasting way to disrupt uh, economies if somebody wanted to do that. So that's the import. That's the additional security element that I see related to financial systems and related to adequate protections. Now, backing down from that, I think that also adequate protections here are what I might call the second wave of Sarbanes-Oxley concerns. If we think of the first wave under Sarbanes-Oxley as addressing the question, are your numbers correct? Right. Are you finding funny money here or what? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Are, are some of your deals off the books so that we don't know? And oh, by the way, so that we can verify that, who has access to the system so they can change those numbers? Right. So anyway, the first things that we saw are, are your numbers correct? The thing that I see that I think also um, rolls information protection of these systems up under Sarbanes-Oxley is that if companies tell regulators and shareholders and customers and consumers that they do have uh, a set of security controls in place to hit a certain target related to these systems and data, and if there are then material uh, bypasses of those controls, and if there's a security breach, now it may be that if there's no security breach, there's no harm, no foul, but if there's a security breach, I believe that that security breach causes harm to shareholders, to consumers, making it a regulatory and a Sarbanes-Oxley issue as well as a national security issue. Right. So in terms of, of the kinds of gaps that you're talking about and these lapses, mm -hmm. let's be more specific about the types of gaps that you're talking about. Are you talking about giving access to anybody who comes along? W what exactly are you talking about in terms of gaps? 
Um, the, the piece that I work on is related to uh, what the industry sometimes calls outsourcing and vendor management. And I hate outsourcing. <laughs> well, there are, there are several different meanings of that term, and there are a variety of buzzwords that, you know, cover that. Uh, some Especially people, outsourcing you know, outside of the country when you're speaking to someone who can't speak English. Well, you know, and uh, you, you touch on an important part of that because as we go through roiling in the global financial markets and as we see, you know, the financial companies that have these systems and data, uh, you know, change ownership and, uh, you know, we've got uh, different uh, different entities from different companies and countries holding interest in there. Uh, you, you know, you, you touch on a very important concern, which is uh, the, the, the data, the systems, and the information uh, are already going uh, or being accessed by non-U.S. Uh, individuals and organizations. Right. So, um, let's see. And that brings in whole issues of the kind of law enforcement in our own country. We have enough problems trying to deal with enforcing security breaches within our country. Exactly. And then you talk about security breaches outside of our country. Exactly. And, and Interpol and, you know, are these happening in companies that we actually can get law enforcement to, to work with us collaboratively. Exactly. I mean, that that's a whole nother can of beans. There. Exactly. So, so you're talking about... Who is it that has has their hands on your systems and data? And, right. and you know, we understand the import, we understand the security, we understand how, you know, if there is a breach that affects everybody, shareholders, customers, consumers, all of that. Um, so the piece, uh, the the gap finding and the gap mitigation that my team and I work on is, as I said, related to uh, outsourcing and uh, the vendors or other entities who have that access. Uh, this is not talking about uh, some of the other highly technical pieces uh, that might occur later on the back end, for instance, uh, running automated scans of your security system and firewall. And I think one of the important points is that uh, we don't pretend that getting a better handle on your deals and on your business relationships will fix everything, but it will certainly help to address and help to close an important gap that we have experienced with in real life. Right. Let's go back to this issue of outsourcing. Besides just the international outsourcing, which I think really gets many Americans very frustrated when they're on the phone and they're trying to make a reservation or they're trying to correct a problem that they have with, with a company that they're dealing with, that that's annoying. And then, of course, you worry about giving your social security number to them or giving your financial information to them or whatever. Mm -hmm. But even within this country, when a company outsources to another company, I, I'm thinking right now off the top of my head about these companies that offer to do credit monitoring mm -hmm. for you and fraud resolution services, because that's close to my heart, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, and I notice that these companies that advertise on websites of doing everything for you, they're really outsourcing to various vendors, and they don't do anything themselves, but they just coordinate. And what are some of the gaps that occur in that? I, I mean, I have a good idea of those that I could talk about, but what kinds of gaps do you see in terms of helping to get a deal between all the vendors and the mother company? Well, uh, uh, for, for these purposes, as we noted, uh, you, you can think of outsourcing as being, okay, there's somebody who's not an employee of big financial services company A. This can be an independent consultant, an independent contractor. It can be a software company, a services company, but they're not under the umbrella, under the direct umbrella of financial services company A. Um, so there are multiple parties through various uh, contractual and deal relationships, various business relationships, uh, that probably have access to these regulated systems and data. So part of the problem is for the company that, uh, uh, that let's say, initiated or was the mother company for, uh, for that data to get its head around and get control of and adequately continue to monitor through the business relationship 
all of the other people and entities who touch that data. And you can't, you can't reasonably hit that to a perfect standard, but we can certainly get it better than what it is in many cases right now. What are some of the problems that you do see right now? With, with, and, and I'm seeing a lot of companies do this. I've just been trying to help some victims myself here with major, major financial services companies who have merged with others, who are outsourcing with others. So what happens is that for a victim of identity theft, for example, everything is outsourced. So nobody, the head doesn't know what the tail is doing. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. And not only correct. do they not know what they're doing, it is, it's very frustrating for the victim. And then the victim comes in and hires me and I'm trying and I'm confused. And I'm frustrated because I'm talking with people all over the country that no one knows what the other one's doing. No one has good records. You know, you, you talk about access. Well, there's not enough access and there's not enough notes in the computer that anybody can really help. That is absolutely correct. And, uh, of course, when you're trying to clean this up, investigate it and clean it up and get an appropriate remedy for it on the back end, of course you're going to be frustrated because in many cases the mother company itself doesn't know where the stuff is. Right. So, I mean, you, you can think about this as... All of these companies are going through different reorganizations. You know, the, the, the information assets are changing hands. Uh, it's in the hands of multiple entities, and nobody knows where the stuff is. That's, right. the, that's the problem. So I, I try to teach people to think of these pieces of information as radioactive data. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I say that, uh, I say that because uh, the, the various companies have pretty good internal definitions, and some of them use uh, different definitions to define different categories, but let's use the military definition. The companies have very good definitions internally of what is top secret data, what is secret data, what is uh, confidential data, and what is not classified. You know, when some call it, you know, they might call it, you know, red, orange, and green, that kind of stuff. It, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They, have, they have very good understandings of which pieces of data are, let's call it, radioactive. But a lot of the gap happens, as you mentioned, in not having a good continuing understanding through the whole of that business relationship of who is touching that data. Right. And the problem is is that in, in some companies, they collect more than they need, and then they don't classify those. They, they're very good about classifying their own trade secrets mm-hmm. yes. and their own copyrights and all those things that they want to keep you know, more sensitive to protect the company, they're not very good about classifying sensitive customer and employee data. That is that is correct. Um, now, I would say that uh, a lot of that is a combination of, of data silo problem and a level problem. In many companies, you'll find... Uh, you know, wonderful executive and management positions uh, that have very expert knowledge of this stuff that understand uh, not only the regulatory framework and the requirements and the controls needed and understand which pieces of data are sensitive and why, but not everybody on every team at every level has that kind of knowledge or understanding. And, of course, you can't make everybody in the company a Ph.D. in information security, but uh, sometimes the, uh, the different teams or individuals that should have more experience and knowledge about this just simply don't have it. Right. It seems to me that if you're going to provide an employee with access to sensitive information, that you should, as part of that job description, is to also be the, you know, the, the guardian of that information. I agree with and, that. And to have some kind of privacy and security training with regard to what you have access to. I agree with that. I agree with that. And I would, uh, I would clarify that a little bit. Because as I'm pointing out uh, with regard to how companies manage their outsourcing and vendor relationships, you might have many, many different teams, all with different areas of experience and responsibility that touch and manage that vendor relationship, uh, but that may not be trained in that. So what I'm saying is that uh, somebody who is on a deal team or on a vendor management team 
might not have direct access to customer credit card data, but they have a direct influence on how the vendor relationship runs, so they influence the security of that data. Now, when Laura, when you're negotiating these deals, what kinds of protections do you put in place to make sure that the company that's the vendor or the vendor that's outsourced to, that they're compliant with the security and privacy policies of the company that's outsourcing to them? Well, uh, you, you raise another very good issue because what you're talking about is doing a deal with a vendor that's going to have access to regulated data. And in order to put those appropriate protections in place, uh, one, the deal team doing that must have a pretty good and sophisticated understanding of what the requirements and controls are in order to be able to negotiate with that vendor. In in many cases, uh, that's... Uh, That's something to be addressed, and that's some of the training that my colleagues and I have worked on. Uh, The the set of controls and the requirements for the financial services industry are pretty well defined and well known, and I'll explain a little bit about that in the starting point. I usually think of the controls as starting from the statutes and the regulations, of which there are many. Yeah, and the financial industry is probably more regulated than any other industry. Um, I think so. There, there are, of course, a myriad of regulatory agencies and of statutes uh, that cover the industry. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit ambiguous and uh, they're not always well coordinated, but there's a wealth of information out there as far as how the industry meets those requirements. Right, right. So we start with the formal laws and the agency regulations, right. of, of which there are many and they have to be coordinated. So then the financial services industry has done a great job of addressing and providing to its members uh, a body of knowledge, a framework for how to meet all of these varying legal requirements. And your, your listeners are, I'm sure, familiar with a lot of the legal requirements. These are things like Graham-Leach-Bliley, Sarbanes-Oxley, the regulations uh, that fall under uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, Federal Trade Commission, Office of Thrift Supervision. I mean, these are just a a few of of many. Right. Controller of the currency, everybody. Yeah, everybody's out there trying to control and and, uh, regulate this industry. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So so you see uh, the problem that the industry has addressed, which is, oh, we've got these many, many uh, statutes and regulations that we we must hit. How do we coordinate those all into into one framework or set of guidelines or standards? Right. And financial services has has done a great job of that. There's an industry consortium called BITS. It's B I T S. Uh, the information is publicly available. Uh, it's on it's on uh, the web at uh, B as in banking, I T S info dot org. Uh, registration is free. There are publications available for download, which uh, are a great starting point that anybody can use uh, as far as outlining the industry best practices. Right. So then what happens is that many companies uh, then work with those industry best practices or standards. I'm not going to get hung up on the vocabulary there. Um, Companies document their internal policies and procedures and preferences for how they will adequately satisfy those standards. So many of these companies uh, do and have spent a lot of time and money to put uh, policies in place. That's documented. The bypass and controls, the gap that my colleagues and I work on is what happens when the deals and the vendor relationships bypass these policies. And the danger there is that I I would compare this to, uh, say, an airline company says, oh, we have all of these safety checks in place. This is how we take care of you. This is our checklist. But then the checklist gets bypassed before the plane takes off. Right, right. So that includes training, doesn't it? I mean, if you have a policy, then the policy gets translated into training, or it should, right? That That is one element of it. Yes. And what else, how else is it implemented? Well, some, some of the uh, training that I suggest and have 
put in place uh, with some teams and uh, designed systems for uh, relate to uh, one of the most important issues is accountability, and another issue is how the teams that touch these deals, and there are many teams that touch these deals, how the teams that touch these, these vendor or outsourcing deals are compensated and rated. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that for many of the contracting or buying teams, uh, the teams that uh, perform the due diligence as far as whether this is an appropriate uh, relationship, uh, what data will this vendor have access to, where will the data sit, who will touch it, do we have appropriate protections in place, that kind of thing. Many of the teams that touch these vendor relationships are based on what I called, uh, or what I call, an old line manufacturing or contracting model. I, I sometimes refer to this as uh, a Henry Ford Model T assembly line model of doing deals. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Just push it on down the line. Push uh -huh. it on. Push it on down the line. So you know, in in many cases, okay, we we don't understand, uh, we don't understand the requirements. Uh, we are uh, trained and compensated based on process rather than uh, based on an appropriate analysis uh, for this risk environment. And one of the things uh, that I stress is that at least on uh, the deals that I've worked on, in, in many of these cases, I've not found people uh, uh, deliberately trying to do something wrong or trying to do something illegal. It's because the job functions uh, and their compensation and their rating structure uh, were set up under a model that is not appropriate for our threat environment. Hmm. So what's the weakest link? The weakest link that I work on is uh, this whole uh, contracting process, meaning the whole life cycle of the deal. How do we evaluate a potential deal in a vendor? How do we uh, agree upon contract terms and sign a contract with them? And how do we monitor that business relationship to make sure that the vendor is appropriately handling our data? Right, right. And I, I think about all the people who are the weakest link in many of the companies that I deal with that cause all the problems that they do cause, at least for the, the security breaches that I see. And it's, it's all because they don't understand what the policies and procedures are they are not trained well, and then there's no enforcement. Yes, yes, that is correct. That is correct. Hmm. We're speaking with Laura Wilson, who is an attorney. She's a privacy advocate, a business consultant, and she's working with Para Consulting Group. You can find out more about her at techlex.com. That's T-E-C-H-L-E-X.com. And we're talking about all sorts of aspects of information security, which is such a big deal nowadays. We're hearing about literally millions of pieces of data that are involved in security breaches. And we're hearing about those because they are major security breaches and there has these, the data has not been encrypted. But there are probably myriad more pieces of information that are compromised through security breaches that we don't hear about. And so it's getting worse every day. Now, what are some of the red flags that a financial services company should look for? Uh, among the questions that I would start looking at in my whole deal process is, uh, as I've mentioned, how people are trained and compensated. And one thing that I do want to emphasize as we're working on this is it's not my belief that everybody who negotiates and manages a deal needs to have a law degree or even necessarily formal uh, training in contract law and contract language. For instance, some of the best people with whom I've worked were not lawyers, uh, but were former uh, contracting officers in the military. So, you know, had, had uh, at, at least a very standardized and very formal education in contract law. Uh, and, and I say that I do not recommend that everybody who negotiates these deals have a JD degree uh, for the reason that I have worked with some people who were not JDs, who were very, very good at what I call tearing apart a deal and putting it back together, 
because as you know from your mediation, when you're bringing together, you know, different parties to reach uh, some reasonable agreement, uh, you're, you're not going to get everything that you want on your side, so you've got to understand how to work with that other party. Right. So many of the people with whom I've worked, even though they were not JDs, were flat-out experts in that and knew what every word in that document meant and how to rewrite those documents as needed. And I have also worked with uh, some lawyers who may have been experts in other areas but who were not experts in these kinds of deals or who did not even bother to read their deals. So they weren't really looking for the red flags that you're talking about now. They, they, they kind of passed them by. Uh, a lot of this in, in the way that many of the systems are set up is based more on a process. As you've noted, you know, how quickly do we close a deal? Um, uh, I've, I've seen people rated, you know, on how, how long it takes them to negotiate a deal and, you know, sign the paper, regardless of what the paper says. Uh, Just get the deal. Just yeah. get them out there. Yeah. And, and, and that's common in any transaction. I mean, uh, you know, it, it is in a lot of financial transactions, mortgages, things like that, we're seeing a lot of problems now because nobody really analyzed the risk or the benefit of the deal. Exactly. So uh, one thing that I look for is, at least on very complex deals accessing this data, my opinion is that the person driving that deal, and remember you're going to have many different teams touching this, but the person driving the, the, the paperwork and the vendor relationship of that deal I recommend should have the skill level to flat out tear that thing apart and put it back together rather than just, you know, shove the paperwork along. Uh, another thing that I think is a red flag is if your deal team is compensated on, as I noted, the time or the volume of deal processed or... Quantity rather than quality? Quantity rather than quality and, uh, you know so-called customer satisfaction. If your deal teams think of their, their customer, the people that they're supposed to serve as being the team that wants the project done, even if it's a risky project, if that's who they're driven to satisfy, there's a lot of tendency to just push the deal along. Right. So, and, and uh, it, it is certainly important to work well with the other internal teams and to be able to operate in an efficient manner uh, and to uh, get things done uh, you know, fairly readily, but those are not the only elements for which these people should be compensated. You know what happens a lot of times in these companies that I've seen, at least, and this is only as an outsider and you've been working inside corporations more than I have, and that is that they seem to be giving more budget and more credence and more care to their marketing departments than they are to their compliance departments. Their, I agree with that. Their security departments. I agree. Yeah. And and they kind of say, poo-poo, you're just um, trying to, you know, ruin the deal. I agree with that. Yeah. I agree yeah. with that. And I would call, uh, I would call, you know, many of those expert teams, you know, your compliance departments, um, your, your contract uh, negotiators and managers, your security teams, uh, uh, you know, your financial experts. To me, those are, uh, I would describe them as control teams. You know, let, let's, let's put some kind of reasonable analysis on this before we just uh, pass everything through. And I'm not saying that uh, that it's wrong for marketing and sales and business development to try to get out there and, and bring in new deals, but it's a different mindset. You know, their, their incentive is always to push the project along and, and let's get this thing done. And your control teams, your job functions, including your contracts departments, I believe that many of those have not been given the appropriate gravitas for what needs to be protected. Well, they're not the profit centers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're they're uh, they're the things that are that are holding everybody back. At least that's mm -hmm. the view I think from many of the the top down is that oh goodness, you know, marketing's all excited. We're going to do this great deal, mm -hmm. and um, they haven't they they push hard on the compliance department, the legal department. Get this done. Get it done now. And I think that's really unfortunate. Do you think that's changing now because of all of the security breach issues and the that that's becoming an, um, a department that is getting more attention and more uh, budget? 
I think it's beginning to, um, and you mentioned a very good point and one that I think is very encouraging. Um, I think that uh, more attention and, you know, more gravitas and more money and more training for these control and protection departments uh, is in place. Uh, it's, it's not yet there because, you know, we've not closed the data silos. Uh, but the thing that I find encouraging is that we had exactly the same kind of problem pre and post Sarbanes-Oxley when I was working in uh, the dot-com technology arena. And the problem there was uh, bypass of controls, specifically uh, at that time, finance and accounting controls. And before Sarbanes-Oxley, there used to be a lot more tolerance for, well, we're a little bit late, you know, a couple of days past the quarter as far as getting the deal signed, but we'll just, you know, we'll just backdate it a little bit so we can hit this quarter's numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw uh, in, in my real-world work almost an overnight shift in those attitudes, uh, both from the buy and the sell side, and I saw this across multiple companies, and what I saw was that even teams that could not spell Sarbanes-Oxley much, much less know what it meant. <laughs> they knew how to say socks. <laughs> <laughs> they, they knew what the, what the import was if there were a material Sarbanes-Oxley problem. So what I see now is uh, that legitimate business people, as long as the, the position is clearly articulated to them and is held consistently that, hey, you can't do this, this is a Sarbanes-Oxley problem, they will not do that deal, even if it means losing a deal bonus. Now, they'll go all over the world to try to find an accountant in the company who will say, yeah, this is clear, let it go. But if everybody holds the line and says, uh-uh, we don't green light this, they won't do it. And I think that the same kind of understanding needs to be applied to protection of regulated systems and data. Well, I think that's good. I think that uh, that's going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is a need for more legislation in this area? I would not be opposed to uh, well-written statutes or uh, you know more regulatory mandates if somebody wants to write those. But I think that uh, for a variety of reasons that we have got in place right now enough uh, different regs, enough different statutes, and enough different uh, well-established claims by potential individual and class plaintiffs to uh, get some teeth behind protection of these systems. Uh, So what I'm saying is that I'm not opposed to any additional regs or statutes, but if somebody is harmed by a data security breach, I don't think they have to wait for another law to be written. I think there's enough there. Yeah. You know, what I've noticed in a lot of these laws, like Gramm-Leach-Bliley, there's no private cause of action. And even with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, many of the provisions they, you know, in the federal law have been changed to disallow a private right of action. So a lot of these laws, that the federal laws that have passed that have been trying to hold people, you know, hold companies accountable, I think the problem is is that the enforcement is, you know, if, if it's not going to be the Federal Trade Commission, if it's not going to be a federal agency, and a lot of these federal agencies just don't have the money to enforce everything mm-hmm. or to audit everybody. That it, I, it's, to me, it seems like one of the healthiest things would be to allow a private right of action for some of these abuses with regards to security breaches, because we haven't been able to uh, really see much in that area. A lot of that has been really just the, the federal regulators have had to come in. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that there are uh, many different ways and many different theories to, let's call it, backing into uh Uh, not only increased regulatory oversight and enforcement, uh, but also private causes of action, both individual and class plaintiffs. Um, And I'll I'll, uh, track it back to uh, what we saw in dot-coms. When there is an event, uh, a corporate event, you know, corporate wrongdoing that causes material harm and people lose a lot of money, uh, people, shareholders, consumers will sue everybody that they can find with any money. Right. And I think that this is beginning to happen with data security breaches. Um, For instance, I uh, get a lot of alerts and monitor uh, a lot of online information related to consumer concern over uh, InfoSec breaches. Mm -hmm. And one of the most recent corporate breaches uh, has compromised, apparently, many, many, many uh, 
uh, individual uh, profiles and uh, uh, pieces of financial information. There like is the TJ Maxx, for example. Uh, such as that one, although I'm, I'm uh, speaking about another one, but you know, okay. they're, they're easy there's to find. Yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's plenty of them out there. Google is your friend. Um, there is already a lot of talk on the blog sphere um, and on uh, plaintiffs and class action attorneys regarding let's get a class action together on this. Right. And this is, this is uh, right now, at least the step that I've seen, is starting in the uh, consumer and customer arena. I think also, for the reasons that you and I have talked about, I think that a uh, an infosec breach, if the company represented, which most of them do, because they give you privacy policies and they say in their you know 10Ks and 10Qs and other public statements that they do certain things to protect information, if those representations are out there and they were materially bypassed, I believe that that's a shareholder issue. Right. Right. So, and I, I do think that, as I said, um, I think that this is the next, you know, shareholder derivative, uh, the, ne- the next class action, the next potential DNO liability issue. Right, they're, that they're starting. Yep. We're speaking with Laura Wilson, who is an attorney, a privacy advocate, a business consultant with Para Consulting Group, and you can find out more about her at techlex.com. That's T E C H L E X.com. Let me ask, you know, right now we've heard so much about what's happening in the financial industry. We're, we're hearing about companies going under, banks going under, banks eating up other banks, other financial industry. It's a very uh, disconcerting time, I think, for a, a lot of us worrying about the whole financial system in our country. How does, the, how does this climate exacerbate the problem of protecting financial systems and data? This climate, the current turmoil that we're seeing, uh, makes this protection even worse um, for the reason that it is hard enough to protect these systems and information assets, which reside in many different places in hard copy and electronic form, as, as you and your listeners know very well. It's hard enough to protect and monitor that stuff when a company is not going through a downturn, is not laying off people who are then unhappy workers who walk out with a flash drive, right. um, is not uh, uh, changing or, or going through a merger and acquisition in which uh, projects change hands and somebody has to pick up a project that they know nothing about. And, oh, by the way, we don't know where the data sits. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's hard enough to do that in good times. Um, the, the current and, then, and, then, and then the other thing is when they're, when they're laying off the people mm-hmm. who are supposed to be doing the work that you're talking about, protecting the systems, training the staff, right? <laughs> exactly. You, you have hit exactly the message that uh, we hope to get out to financial services and anybody else who's interested in raising uh, the level of this, of this protection. This is not the time for financial services to cheap out on protecting these systems and information. Right. Now, are you at all optimistic? I mean, we've talked about all these, <laughs> you know, everything sounds so bleak. But I know, and I've talked to you before on occasions, and, I'm, and it's so great to be able to talk to you now, but is there any hope? <laughs> there is hope. There is hope. And, of course, the, the, the first step in making progress and in closing these gaps is in understanding the problem so that you know how to go out and find it and fix it. Um, and that's another, uh, that's another thing that we talk, out, talk about very carefully. It doesn't do any good to, to uh, tell individuals and companies that there's a problem if there's no solution. So uh, several things uh, make me very optimistic. One, having addressed this, uh, as I've noted, via human engineering uh, with, with several real-world examples uh, in several different companies, I know that the problem can be fixed. Uh, the, the problem that I call bringing up to code this vendor relationship and the contractual protections around it. That can be done, and it can be done efficiently without shutting the business down, as long as you have people who understand the problem and who, who know how to do the work. Other reasons for optimism are, again, I think that the current financial turmoil, uh, while disruptive, is getting enough attention that there will be teeth and there will be appropriate attention paid to this as long as people understand that this is a risk that companies are obligated to address. Lloyd says we have about three minutes, so can you just give me a couple ideas about 
what consumers and shareholders can do to better protect themselves? Absolutely. One of the first things that I think is so important is to get appropriate attention on this. You know, right now, we're all worried about what's the share price uh, of, of so-and-so company? Is my, uh, is my policy or is my pension or uh, is my bank account still safe? Right. Should I go and grab all my money out of the bank? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And yes, that's important. But I think that we want to uh, keep talking about and getting attention on, remember companies, you have this information and you have this data. As I said, this is not the time to cheap out on this protection. Make sure that in, in your concern, very appropriate attention to the financial considerations, you don't neglect the back door and let this, let this data go unprotected. Well, we thank you so much, Laura. I wonder what is going to happen. We'll have to have you back with us after you <coughs> tell us all the companies that you've been able to help. And give us your website again where we can learn more about all the wonderful things you're doing. Of course. Well, thank you. And, of course, I can't tell you the companies, but I can talk at an industry-wide level and help, uh, help people understand and fix this stuff. Uh, my website is www.techlex.com. That's T-E-C-H-L-E-X as in X-ray. And on my site, you'll be directed to my consulting group uh, that handles business engagements and to the San Francisco public relations firm uh, that handles inquiries and professional informational questions. Well, that's terrific because we have a lot of companies in Newport Beach and the surrounding area that may be very interested in finding out more, and hopefully they can learn from your website and give you a call if they have a question. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maury, and I wish the best to you and your many listeners. Okay. Good evening. Thanks. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. on Wednesday evenings to find out all about privacy issues in the information age. You can also go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can listen to the archived interviews. You can download podcasts. You can write us emails about what you're interested in in privacy issues and what you'd like to know more about. Thank you, Lloyd, and thank you for joining us. Good evening. The views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday evening from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And I'm also privileged to be able to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. Last week, we spoke with Lieutenant Rich Paddock, who happens to be the Chief of Police Services in Aliso Viejo, but he has a very other exciting hat that he wears, and he is in charge of the Mounted Enforcement Unit for the Orange County Sheriff. And he's been with the Orange County Sheriff for 32 years, and he does wonderful things with those gorgeous horses. So tell us a little bit more about the horses, who owns them, where they're kept, and what you have to do with them. Well, Mari, uh, most of our members uh, have the horses at their residence, but out of the 31 members of our team, we have 12 at the James A. Music facility in Irvine. We have about a three-and-a-half-acre site up there at our, at our branch jail, and we have two full-time employees they're responsible for uh, the care and control of the horses. Uh, the folks that don't have their horses at the music facility generally have them at their uh, residence or at a local stable. And our horses range from quarter horses. Uh, most of our horses, 99% of them are males or quarter horses. And we even recently obtained a full-size Clydesdale horse. If you've ever stood next to a Clydesdale, you're, you feel like you're standing next to an elephant. But he has really worked in well with the rest of us. His name is Triton, and he's a big fella. Fun to have around. So who owns the horse? Does the sheriff own the horses, or do the people own the horses? The county owns 12 of the horses, and then the other, the balance of the 31, are owned privately by the members of the mounted unit. We have several members on our unit who have been with the Sheriff's Department and on the mounted unit for 25-plus years. So we have a lot of good experience uh, from with which to draw. You know, you and I had talked before about some of the great things that these horses have allowed you to do. Will you tell us one of the stories about the, an activity that the mounted enforcement unit does? My pleasure. My favorite to talk about is the, the day that the 
Stanley Cup was flown into the uh, Honda Center right after the Ducks won the, won the, uh, the World Championship. The Anaheim Police Department is responsible for the policing of that area and requested assistance from us and our other partners at uh, the Garden Grove and the Santa Ana Police Department. So what we were able to do, Mari, is assemble about 45 officers and deputies, and we parked 20 of them standing shoulder to shoulder in a straight line facing the parking lot at the Honda Center. On the horses, on the horses. On the horses, and then the other, about another 20 or 25 officers and deputies perpendicular down Douglas Road. And so if you can imagine a 90-degree angle, and what we were doing is watching 15,000 people in the parking lot of the Honda Center. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was there. The Ducks were there. They flew in the, the Stanley Cup. And what it was is what we call a static display of force, and it showed everybody that we were there and we had a force multiplier and we were ready to do anything that we needed to do to keep those people safe down there in that parking lot. We had plenty of uh, foot support from the Anaheim Police Department and it was just a wonderful event. People would look up at the horses and wave at us and all we did was stand there. After the event was over, we had hundreds and hundreds of people come by and say hello to the deputies and the officers, thanking them for just being there. It really is a crowd calmer, if you will. And they probably wanted to pet the beautiful horses, too. They did. You know, <laughs> we don't like them to do that, because if you stand in one place for three hours, you know, you yeah. get a little stiff. Uh, but they did want to, and uh, we had very kindly <laughs> asked them to go back. But right. it, was, it was a great day had by all, and mostly... It was a safe day. They're beautiful horses. Thank you so much for joining us, Lieutenant Rich You're Paddock. Welcome. You're quite welcome, Mari. Talk to okay. you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.